may I remind each and every one of you that there's a war going on. We established that fact last Sunday, that there is an invisible war, that there is a spiritual war, that there is a war going on between the arch enemy of our soul, Satan, and God. And we are involved in that, world, in that war. And when I say we, I mean we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize that even though this war is invisible, you might not be totally convinced that it is going on. But I think the way that Paul has strategically placed these verses, it is a great reminder that there is a war that is going on. These verses didn't just happen to come into this book. They're placed after Paul talks about the wealth of the Christian, after he talks about the walk of the Christian, he now lets us know that living up and measuring up to our wealth in Christ will not be easy. In fact, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul talks about the fact that Christians are to walk in harmony. And in order for that to happen, they must be filled and dominated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being filled by him is the key to proper worship, to singing songs that bring glory and honor to God, giving thanks. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key to having a marriage that reflects Christ and the church. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key to harmonious families where there are good relationships between parents and children. In fact, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the key to the workplace. And so Paul wants us to realize that. But in order for us to be filled with the Spirit and to fulfill our different responsibilities, he reminds us that that will not be automatic. There's a war going on. And the battlefield manifests itself in different places. Sometimes the battlefield is our own personal life where we struggle with living according to God's word. Sometimes the battlefield is our marriages, where we struggle with having a marriage that reflects Christ in the church. Sometimes the battlefield is our family, where parents have problems with children, and children have problems with parents, and sometimes the battlefield is the workplace. If you don't think there is a war going on, I suggest that you look at those areas of your life. Look around you, and you will see, and you ought to be convinced, that there is a war that is going on. And in light of that, how should we live? Since there is a war going on, we have seen that the war requires that believers be strengthened, that they be spiritually strong, that they become strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That the war demands that believers put on the full armor of God if we're going to stand against the schemes and methodologies and strategies of Satan. This morning, I want to remind us that the war demands 
and requires that believers know their enemies. That we know our enemies in this spiritual war. If you don't know who your enemies are, if you're not aware of your enemies in this war, you are doomed to failure. If you don't know who your enemies are, you could be ending up fighting the wrong enemy and the wrong foe. And so Paul understands that there's no way that a soldier can be successful. There's no way that the battle can be won. There's no way that the war can be won unless we know our enemies. And so he writes in verse 12, having told his readers to put on the full armor of God that they can stand against the schemes of the devil. He says the reason why you need to do that is because you have enemies in your walk with God. That's why we put on God's armor, because of the presence of enemies. And Paul seeks to let us know who our true enemies are. And so he writes in verse 12, look at that verse in your Bible. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's why we have to put on the full armor of God. But before Paul identifies our true enemies, he lets us know that the war is intense. That the war is intense. This is not some lighthearted battle. This is not shadow boxing as if it's no big deal. This war is intense. Paul refers to it as a struggle. And it's a struggle for every Christian, and it's a struggle for Paul himself. He says, our struggle. And what's weird is that Paul is speaking in military terms, but then all of a sudden, when he speaks about the struggle, he uses uses an athletic metaphor of wrestling. That's weird. Now, if we're fighting, if we're in a battle... If we're in a war, why speak of wrestling? But that's what he does. And that's why in some of your Bibles, if you're King James Version individual, it says, we wrestle not. We wrestle. And some uh, Bibles have wrestling. Because this struggle is defined by an athletic metaphor, figure. The figure of wrestling. And it's amazing that people try to harmonize that. I mean, are we going to get fully clothed soldiers who have the full armor of God wrestling with each other? That, that seems bizarre. I got a helmet on. I got a press, breastplate on. I got a sword. I got a shield. And, and now I'm supposed to be wrestling with the other person? I think the reason why Paul does that I think the reason why he changes the metaphor, the picture, is so that we might realize that this war is intense, that it's hand-to-hand combat. It's in close proximity. 
We should not think of our enemies as those who are way out there in the distance, can't see them. But no, he wants us to realize in this battle, in this war, you better picture your enemies as face to face with you. In fact, the term that uh, Paul uses here uh, is hand-to-hand battle. It's like grabbing hold upon another individual. So he's trying to communicate, my friends, that as Christian in this war, it is a struggle. It is a battle. It is hand-to-hand conflict. It is intense. It is fierce. And to undergird that idea, when Paul identifies the enemies, who the enemy is not and who the enemies are, he uses this word against five times in one verse. And that word against was used in reference of Jesus Christ. In John 1.1, when Jesus Christ is described as always existing, as being God, it says that he was in the presence of the Father, in a face-to-face relationship with God the Father. When you think about Jesus Christ, when you go to eternity past, the one who was in the beginning was with the Father in a face-to-face relationship. And now Paul is saying, Christian, the, the war that you're in is a face-to-face battle with your enemies. It's not distant. It's not remote. It's face-to-face. It's like two boxers who enter into the boxing ring. And, and as the referee, the umpire is giving the instruction, they're staring at each other. They're facing each other face-to-face, so close they almost could kiss each other. That's how close they are. But that's what the war is all about. We are in an intense struggle, in a face-to-face conflict with enemies. And we need to understand that the war, and hear me, church, hear me, Christian, the, the war is not against human beings. Obviously, you have not experienced any difficulties in your life. Because you would have shouted, amen. The the, the war is not against human beings. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Literally, blood and flesh. That is, human beings. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is not a human being. And if you don't realize that, if you don't understand that, you will fail to win in this battle that God has placed you in. The war is not against human beings. There was a naval officer. He was down underneath the boat. He came on deck and two of the naval officers were fighting on the deck, duking it out. And he grabbed both of them and whirled them around and and had them face the enemy's ship. And he said, men, that's our enemy. The, The enemy was not for them each other, but the ones who were in the other ship, that's the enemy. And Paul is whirling us around. 
He's turning us around from looking at human beings and saying, human beings are not the enemy. Human beings, whether they're saved or unsaved, are not the enemy. Human individuals are not our ultimate problem. Our enemy is not a political party, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Our enemy is not a racial group, black, brown, yellow, white, whatever. Our enemy is not even a movement. Our enemy, our true enemy, is not human beings. Now, that doesn't mean that the true enemy can't use human beings or human institutions or organizations to make life hard for the Christian. But the Christian must ultimately understand that my true enemy is not a human being. And if that's the case, then who are my enemies? Paul tells us in the last part of verse 12. He says our enemies are rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces. He uses a four-term description to speak of our true enemies. And the fact that they're not Human beings are not flesh and blood. It implies that our true enemies are invisible. That you can't see them with your eyes. And when he describes these four categories, basically what he's describing are demons. Demons under the authority of Satan. That's our true enemy. And you might not think demons exist, but the Bible thinks that. And the Bible wants us to know that in our battle, in our war, that there is the existence of demons. Who are demons? Demons are nothing more than angelic beings that God created who fell when they chose to follow Satan and not God. And so there is a realm of demonic beings, just like there's a realm of good angels, there's a realm of evil angels. And those evil angels, under the position of Satan himself, there are enemies. And I want you to see several things about these demonic beings about our enemies. They're numerous. They're numerous. When you look at Paul's description, all of the terms are in the plural. Not one or two. There are a whole host of demons who are following Satan. They're organized. Uh, I hope you don't think that Satan is disorganized in his campaign. They're organized. Paul refers to them as rulers and also as powers. Those terms are used with regards to human government. 
In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Titus, Titus instruct them to submit to rulers, to authorities. The implication is there are those who are placed in position who have a position of ruling and have a position of authority. Demonic beings are referred to as rulers and authorities. Paul is not talking about the government. He's talking about demonic beings. They're organized. They're structured. And that's why Satan possesses this methodology, uh, these schemes to get us to fall and to fail. These demonic beings are powerful. That's not my term. That's Paul's term. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers. And then a little bit later, he refers to world powers, world forces. It's not important to get into all the nitty-gritty details of who he actually means. Paul just wants us to know that our enemies, our foes, are powerful. You can't see them, but you bet, bet, bet your last dollar that they're powerful. They're not weak. They're not impotent, but they're powerful. And not only that, we see their power demonstrated in different times in Scripture. Read the Gospels. Read what demons did to human beings. There were human beings who were blind because they were possessed by a demon. There were individuals who could not speak because they were possessed by a demon. There was a man who lost his mind. He was dehumanized. He lived among the the caves and the tombs because he was possessed by many demons. If you think demons cannot affect a person's life, and I'm not talking about a Christian, I'm talking about an unsaved person, then read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Demons, these angelic beings who have fallen, are powerful. And Paul goes on to say that these demonic beings are associated with darkness. With darkness, he refers to that third group as the world rulers of this darkness. Paul understands the reality that we live in a dark world. Sometimes we refer to individuals as being in a dark place, but the Bible speaks of the world in which we live as being in a dark place. Paul even talks about the fact that we, before we got saved, were formerly darkness. Before you got saved, before I got saved, we were formerly darkness. And we manifested and produced the fruit of darkness. And if we're even more consistent, before I got saved, I lived in the realm, in the kingdom of darkness that's headed by Satan. When God saved you, when he saved me, he snatched us out of the kingdom of darkness headed by Satan and controlled by demonic beings, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. My friends, darkness is a reality. And our world is in darkness. Men's eyes are blinded 
so that they cannot see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because they're in darkness. And we need to be praying, God, remove the blinders. Allow people to see the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our enemies, they're associated with darkness. They're not associated with that which is good, that which is helpful. They're associated with that which is darkness. And if that's not enough, our enemies, the demons, are associated with wickedness. I know for some of you this is fairy tale. This is a figment of my imagination or the Bible's imagination. But you go out into this world. You start examining what is taking place in our society, in our state, in our country, in our world. And you will see beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a dark world in which we are to shine as lights. Wickedness abounds. Turn on your TV. The the news is nothing but wickedness. And so Paul mentions another category. He says spiritual forces of wickedness. Some believe that refers to all the demons. I'm not sure. All I know is that demons are associated with wickedness. With that which is evil. That which is bad. And if you don't know your enemies, you're going to be a sucker. And he's going to defeat you easily. The enemies are those powers, those rulers, those world forces, those spiritual forces. And Paul says one other amazing thing about them is that those demons are in the heavenly places. The Bible speaks of a realm called the heavenly places. And if you read through the book of Ephesians, you will find that phrase mentioned about five times. And it's only mentioned in Ephesians. Paul says we have been blessed with all spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says that Christians are in the heavenly places, seated with Christ. So you don't know who you are in Christ. That's what Paul is trying to do in this book. Find out who you are in Christ. And as we said last Sunday, we have been raised with Christ from the dead. We have been raised up to heaven. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So in those heavenly places are angels, good angels. But also we learn here that there are evil angels. Our blessings are in the heavenly places. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in the heavenly places. You and I are in the heavenly places. And these demonic beings are in the heavenly places. And it creates a conflict creates a struggle in this battlefield on earth. No wonder, Paul says, put on the full armor of God. How are you going to be able to wrestle with 
How are you going to be able to struggle with enemies who are numerous, who are invisible, who are powerful, who are organized, who are associated with evil, who are associated with darkness, who are residing in the heavenlies? How are you going to be able to deal with them? The only way is what Paul says in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. And he knows that his readers are like you and me. It ain't enough to tell us once. Got to tell us twice. Because sometimes we don't get it the first time. And so when we come to verse 13, we see the last thing with regards to how we are to live in light of the fact that a war is going on. In light of that fact that a war is going on, we as believers are required to fight. To fight. I know some of you fight at home. Some of you fight in your marriages, but that's not the fight that is being spoken of here. This war that is going on, we are to be participants in it and not on the sideline. We're not to be spectators. To be a spectator, to not be involved, is defeat. It's devastating to your spiritual well-being. You can think that you are somebody. You can think that you know all about life and how to live it and what to do, that you've been around the block a few times. But you're in a war. Whether you want to be in a war or not, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in a war, and it is required of you that you fight. The fight means that you got to take up God's armor. Now, Paul says in verse 13, let me read that verse for you so it hits you. Therefore, what do you mean therefore? Therefore, in light of your enemies, therefore, since your enemies are not flesh and blood, but they're demonic beings, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Why? For what purpose? That you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The fight requires that we take up God's armor. He said Paul's repeating something. He sure is. Because that's how crucial, that's how important The armor of God is in living the Christian life. It's not something optional. It's not something that we can just say, well, I'll have it in my closet. When I need it, I'll go get it. No, the armor of God is to be taken up and it's to be put on. And we'll talk about the pieces of the armor, but don't worry about that right now. It's not so much the helmet. It's not so much the shield, it's truth, it's faith, it's righteousness, it's the word of God. But the armor is to be taken up and put on. 
And, and this is not my armor or your armor. It's the armor of God. He's the source of this armor. Don't come up with your own designer clothes. Don't come up with your own picture of, of what the armor should look like. God says, I have the armor, and I want you to put on the full armor of mine. All of the armor, not just selected pieces. The fight requires that you take up the full armor of God. And the fight reveals itself in withstanding and standing. Withstanding. How do I know I'm in the fight? How am I know that I'm doing what God wants me to do? I'm withstanding. I'm standing. Paul uses two terms related to standing. But, but the first purpose, the, the reason why we take up the full armor of God and put it on, all of it, is for the purpose that we might resist in the evil day. And that word resist means to withstand, to stand opposed. That's what God is calling upon us to do as his Christian followers. The, the goal for you, the goal for me in the battle is to resist. Resist. Paul didn't say rebuke. Paul didn't say run. Paul didn't say restrain. He said resist. Now you listen to some of these experts in spiritual warfare. They'll tell you that's what you ought to do. That you got to rebuke the devil. Michael the archangel didn't dare to rebuke the devil. He said, in the name of the Lord, I rebuke you. We're not called upon to rebuke the devil. You can go and try to rebuke him. He'll slap you aside your head. He wants you to do that which is silly. You don't have the power. You don't have the authority. And the word of God does not command you to do that. You're not to restrict the devil. And what I mean by that, there are those who tell you that we need to bind Satan. Well, God says, that's my responsibility. God says in a future time after Christ, when Christ comes back to the earth, he says, I will bind Satan. Don't you worry about that. You're not strong enough to bind Satan. And neither are you to run from Satan. Don't get your theology from the Ohio players. Now, some of you are old enough, you know the Ohio players. You used to listen to them. And they came out with that song, Running from the Devil. That's bad theology. And, and you listen to the song, it's even worse than the title. We're not to restrict, we're not to rebuke, we're not to run, we are to resist. We are to stand firm. And, and, and this standing, this resisting is to be in the evil day. And that's not a time period. That's not the character of the time. That's the moment when Satan and his 
partners seek to wreak havoc in your life. That's the day of significant temptation and intense temptation where the Satan and others is trying to get you to fail, to be a casualty in the war. In the war. For Adam and Eve, the evil day was in the Garden of Eden. For Joseph, the evil day was when Potiphar's wife came to him and grabbed hold of his garment and said, lie with me. That was the evil day for David. The evil day was when he went on his rooftop and saw Bathsheba bathing. I could use other terminology, but that's sufficient. But he saw her bathing. For the Lord Jesus Christ, the evil day when he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. That was the evil day for our Lord. Ananias and Sapphira, the evil day for them was when they sold a piece of property. And what would they do with what they got from the sale of the property? My friends, you and I will experience the evil day when Satan comes himself or through his demonic forces or through circumstances and situations and try to wipe us out spiritually. And, and when that happens, you better make sure you have the armor of God on. Because if you have the armor of God, you'll be able to resist. You, you won't have to run. You won't have to rebuke. You won't have to restrain. You'll be able to resist and stand firm against Satan and his foes in the evil day. But it's not just about resisting. A second purpose of taking up the full armor of God is that believer may be able to stand firm. I don't know if you've caught it, but when you read verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14, there's that phrase, stand firm. And the reason why it's repeated so much in this section dealing with spiritual warfare is because that is the goal. The goal, when all is said and done, is that you might stand firm. Stand firm. Having resisted in the evil day, having put on the whole armor of God, so that you don't end up being a casualty. So, so, so you don't end up being one who is laying on the ground on the battlefield. The goal for you and for me is to stand firm. And yes, that means putting on the full armor of God, but as Paul says in this verse, having done everything. Did you hear that? Having done everything, stand firm. Giving it your all in all, taking every step, every preparation that's needed to stand firm. Having done everything, stand firm. 
This idea, it's not a passive idea. It's not going to just automatically happen. I have to do everything. I have to listen to all that God tells me to do in his word so that I can stand firm. Some of us are trying to stand firm and we're not following the word of God. We're not obeying what he tells us to do in other areas of our life. And so we're wobbling. We're struggling. We're faltering. We're falling. We're not able to stand firm. And my friends, when it's all said and done, when the evil days have ended, when the battle is over, are you going to be standing firm? Or will your testimony be like so many others who litter the battlefield? that you are going to be a fallen soldier. Trust me, in this war, in this spiritual war, there are fallen soldiers that having lived their life, they're not living it to the end where that it can be said of them that they are standing firm. You might be starting off well. You might be a Sunday school teacher. You might sing in the choir. You might be a musician. You might be a deacon, deaconess, a trustee. You might serve God. And you've been doing it a while. But it's going to take everything that you have, depending upon God's grace and enablement, to stand firm. The, the goal is not just to make it to the end. The, the goal is to stand resolutely firm in the Lord Jesus Christ so that when the dust has settled, I'm standing firm, not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm standing firm because God has enabled me to put on the full armor of God. I'm standing firm because in the evil day I've been resisting by God's grace and enablement. Do all that you can so that when it's all said and done, you are standing firm. The battle does not have to defeat you. The battle doesn't have to scare you. The battle does not have to discourage you. You can be encouraged. Follow what Paul says in this passage in light of the fact that there is a war going on. And you can be successful in this battle. So yes, there's a war going on. And you and I as believers are in this war. Whether you choose to be or not, if you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in the war. And that means we must be strengthened spiritually. That we must be armed spiritually that we must know our enemies, that we must know that we have to fight. And all of this is by the grace of God. May God help us to realize that there's a war going on and that we need to put on the full armor of God. And we'll see what that means in the next coming Sundays. Let's pray together. 
Father, open our eyes to spiritual warfare. Please do not allow Satan and his demonic forces to deceive us or trick us or to think that this is fiction or fantasy, but help us to see that this is reality. Father, thank you that we don't have to be afraid of our enemies, that we don't have to be afraid of Satan or his demonic forces, but that you have told us how we can be successful, that how we can reach the goal of standing firm when the battle is over and when the war is finished. Help us to be strong in the person of Christ and in the power of Christ. Help us to be armed, not with certain pieces of armor that you supply, but with all of the armor that you supply. Help us to fight, not by rebuking the devil or restraining him or running from him, but by resisting him. We know there will be the evil day, but help us to make sure that we have put on your armor and have kept it on so that we can resist in the evil day. And grant us grace, grant us strength, so that we have done everything with the goal of to stand firm. Father, hear our prayer. Answer it according to your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.